And so that means that our, our teachers need to be habituating right action and they need to be teaching true and good and beautiful and good content. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with Paul and Tanya and an old friend, kind of, Mitchell Holly. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about virtue formation in the classroom and virtue formation in classical education more broadly. But before we get there, Paul, you finished Persuasion. I did finish Persuasion. <laughs> and I missed the group. I missed, missed the, the group discussion. meeting. Yes, because I had a tooth pulled. Oh, so right. I totally missed fighting with Paul about Persuasion. Oh, no. Well, let's do it now. I'd like well, to see yeah. the fight. So, so the- <laughs> Can you give me the, like the app, app, what's that? Can you give me a summary of the fight? If I I actually came down on the side that I could get fully on board with persuasion, if I can read it as a critique of a society that does not allow people to communicate properly. That is exactly it. But see, but, but so some of the people at the table were, were okay with that statement. Some people weren't. Oh, so that's fun. But I was, but I was like, if, if this is, if I have to read this as, Ooh, this is all hunky dory and this is wonderful. And this is a great like love story. No, that's, that, that is an abysmal love story. I don't think, I think Jane Austen was smarter than that. I think she knew the plight of the woman and that's what, don't you think? I completely that, agree. And if, and Martin has fought us on this every time, but he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> that's right. But every time we brought this up, he's been like, I don't think so. But I completely agree with you. I think she is tongue firmly planted in cheek through all of her writing. I and, do. and then I can, I can get fully on board with that. Uh, but I just, it was so infuriating for Anne, right. was, you know, the, you, you know, and it was funny because in the discussion, you would have loved this, but early on people were like, oh no, you know, that was just the culture that, you know, you just didn't do that kind of thing. You wouldn't just say what you felt. And then I read a paragraph right after the, the, the perform the opera or the performance they go to where she realizes where where she realizes that Wentworth is jealous of Oh yeah. Elliot. Elliot Mr. Elliot. Yeah, Mr. Elliot. And and there's this whole paragraph about how is she gonna tell him? How could she ever oh. communicate to him that this is that she loves him? I'm like, just tell him. And people <laughs> after I read it was that sort of like that you know, that satirical. Tone, uh-huh. They were like, Oh, now we see it. I'm like, if if that if I can read it that way, then I'm I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, what about you? What have you been reading now that you finished Persuasion? Um, did you read Persuasion? You read I it. did read yeah, it. I yeah. did reread it. Um, I'm reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn after our podcast with Carol. Yeah. And she said that that was what she was reading. And I said I read it as a teenager and I was kind of shocked that she was reading it and in a women's book group. Yeah. And so she convinced me that it's really a book for adults. <laughs> and so I started it again. And when I first started it, I was like, this still is just is like a coming of age novel. Mm-hmm. But then the more I read, it's really about poverty. It's really a book about poverty. And it's fascinating to me. It's just the life of this little girl, like from 11 to college, I guess, pulling herself out of the poverty Mm -hmm. that she lives in in Brooklyn in 1912 is the beginning of the book. So the stories about what her... Mother can do with a stale loaf of bread 
and make that last and make different meals of it for a week. Mm. Are, it, they're just fascinating stories and things that I wouldn't as a teenager have really been focused on at all. I was really more focused on my life paralleling this little girl sure, sure. and all the thing, the teenage things that are going to go yeah. on. But it it's really like a grapes of wrath as far as mm. the plight of poverty. It's not, I mean, it's not, I'm not comparing this yeah. at all with Steinbeck. Right. But as far as thematically, yeah. it deals with poverty in a way that is just heart-wrenching, but also shows the pride. Resilience, maybe. Yeah. Pride, resilience, and goodness mm. of just trying to carve a life out yeah. with very little opportunity for change. Yeah. Speaking of Steinbeck, Tanya, I'm totally in on East of Eden and I'd like to request not to come into work tomorrow and just listen to the book the whole day because <laughs> um, I am all in on this book. I'm, it I've, is so good. It's on my list of things for my kids to get me for Mother's Day. Oh. <laughs> I always have to send them a book East list. <laughs> yeah. I send them a book list. <laughs> it's not exactly the Mother's Day present. <laughs> East of Eden. Yeah, it's a little bit gritty. <laughs> it's always, a, I always, they always get me a book. Okay. I was going to say that it, it seems like a mark of great children or young young adult literature maybe is it's the kind of literature that when you read it as a kid you resonate with the kid's perspective and then when you read it as an adult you resonate with the adult's perspective i mean i feel like that is a, a sign of a powerful piece of work that's targeting kind of young adult children yes mm. i've um still reading the iliad book 14 15 i also though picked up i went to nonfiction. Uh, Tanya, I apologize. That's okay. And I picked up uh, Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Um, and it's about 120 pages and it's a an exploration of the Genesis 22 story where Abraham sacrifices Isaac. Mm. And he says, I can't comprehend why Abraham does this. And what he can't comprehend is faith. And that's the whole mm. thing. It's just mm. the exploration of what is faith and it's paradox. Um, and so I read that on the plane last, last week when I was traveling and, uh, it's really, really good. Really interesting. I am glad that you enjoy those kinds of things, but I will have to admit, I'm, you know, I'm reading from Plato to Christ, mm. which I think is very well written mm. for somebody like me who really just needs an introduction to philosophy but I honestly cannot say that I enjoy discussing, talking about, reading about what is justice, uh -oh. what is injustice, <laughs> how, you know, what are the, is this real, is this unjust? Does this make virtue? this? Do you, do you like I, talking about virtue? Um, well, you know. We can't do the segue yet. Vir virtue may be a problem too. Um, but I just don't enjoy it. Mm. And so this sounds fascinating to me, this mm. Kierkegaard book. But at the same time, I think if I were reading it, would I really, I don't know, you know why Tanya, I don't enjoy it. When I was teaching literature, one of the things I thought I was trying to do was provide avenues for enjoyment. That is, I think a lot of my students had a preconceived notion of what they found enjoyable. And I was trying to put structures in their mind. That That's right. Help them to find other things enjoyable. I think we but I all won't do that for you. We <laughs> all try to. We all try to do that, though. Yeah. Um. Yeah. You know, we want them to enjoy it. Right. That we want them to enjoy the things we enjoy. And I'm trying to enjoy it. It's not happening. In fact, I've got the book and the audio book. Wow. So I'm listening to it, and then I go back to the book. And That's funny. Yeah. 
just not I for you. I still don't enjoy it. <laughs> I just don't think philosophy is for me. So I'm going to probably cut out right now and, <laughs> and let we'll you all just, we'll talk about virtue. There. Well, modern philosophy probably because modern philosophy is, it's not really, it's sort of very abstract. It's not very personal, but like classical philosophy is like very intimate. I mean, it's very. So Plato's like, classical. True. Yeah. Okay. Not enjoying it. Well, <laughs> but, but, but you're, you're also, seeing, but you're, you're reading you're, a modern Right. explanation right. of I what Plato said. Oh, actually reading reading dialogue. Plato himself. Do you think if I read Plato, it would be mm-hmm. actually, more yeah, enjoyable? Absolutely. It'd be better. You should do Paul's course. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mitch, what, are you, what are you reading? Let me come in on those videos. You may have to. I'm having trouble getting people to <laughs> show up. Let the man speak. I'm sorry. Um, three What's things. your name again? <laughs> the man. <laughs> um, uh, three things. Um, one, I'm, I'm in the middle of a Graham Greene novel that Paul gave me, and I don't want to talk about it here because... I want to talk about it with Paul whenever I'm done and I'm afraid that it's he's bad radio. Well, he's going to, he's going to, he loves it so much that he's going to, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want Paul in my mind when yeah, I'm reading. We do need to get to virtue. It's, it's either it, the, it's the end of the thing. I'm not even telling you. Um, I gave him that one. He gave me two. Um, um, so that, and then in, in, as I'm able, I, I'm working through um, the Greek text of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, there's a classics guy and uh, show off. In the, <laughs> I believe you were reading Winnie the Pooh the last time that you were on this in English, but now podcast, I'm working through it in which was like a year ago. Yeah, so right. you've been reading Winnie the Pooh for a year. I'm a really big Winnie the Pooh fan. I, I'm, you know what though? Those translations of children's books are hard. They're, They're very not, difficult. So yeah. you think, you know, your child's taking Latin. So you think, oh, let's get the hat and the hat in Latin or green eggs and ham in no. Latin or Harry Potter in Latin. Yeah. And yeah. it's just, it's hard. Yeah. I've, I've translated a few for Sylvia and, um, Oh. <laughs> and they are, uh, they're not easy. I mean, just from the English to Greek, from English to Greek, and they're pretty difficult. And so like, she'll have to read them later. Um, so Winnie the Pooh, that's the second one, but sort of just as I'm able, I'm really going, going very slow. And then, um, and then we've been talking about your Kierkegaard reading and Kierkegaard has been a huge influence on me. So it's sort of excited. I mean, I've been excited as you've been walking through it. So I, I picked up, um, fear and trembling and just going back and looking at my highlights, and I'm going to start again. You know, my hope is to start in the next day or two, um, just because that was such an influential uh, book for me. Um, so yeah, shout out to Kierkegaard. Um, <laughs> I, don't so, okay. I don't think he's listening. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so these are two total opposite um, reactions to your reading of Kierkegaard. So just embrace Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll uh, try. Uh, he's never been that way to me. Let's. <laughs> Let's transition to our topic. (laughs) And the topic for today is virtue formation. Now, the reason this topic is apropos for us, and I should say that the U.S. history topic, virtue formation, I don't know if directly these topics were suggested to me by a listener, but um, Ben Shinneberry, who's, I believe, the husband of Angela, uh, who works here, sent me a really nice email with several suggestions. And I think both of those were on there, although we've got suggestions from other people too. Um, so thank you for listening and emailing. But virtue is apropos for us because we say in our mission statement that classical education instills virtue. So I think it's worth talking about how it does that. And does it happen in a homeschool, a classical education, an online academy, in a classroom? So Mitch, let me kick it to you first. Principal of the online academy. It's your students are in a disembodied space looking at screens. It hurts. Yeah, it hurts me to say that. But How yeah. does classical education instill virtue? Can I interrupt? Mm-hmm. Can I take this in a different direction? Can we define virtue first? Let's do it. 
Let's that get, sounds like a very philosophical question. Tanya, this is just a new moment for you. Yeah. Is yeah. it? Because that, it doesn't feel philosophical to me. It feels like something you could look up in the dictionary. No, but, well, that, but that's what philosophy is, is asking definitions. A, a way to ask this question would be, I think for a lot of people, it's been fruitful to see how the word virtue is used in the classical period. And that's a part of kind of what sparked this classical education movement. Paul, what do you, where do you think the word, what do you think the word virtue means? Oh, and do okay, you good. think that the, what it means today contrasted with what it used to mean is helpful for us to think about? Okay. Number one, the definition of virtue, I believe I'm going to Aristotelian. Maybe, maybe this is Thomistic. I don't know. A habitual disposition to do the good. Okay. That's what virtue is. A habitual disposition to do the good. So, uh, but I think you're referring to virtue coming from the word virtus, which means like strength or courage and the etymological root. Well, I think it. a lot of people noticing that, you know, the word that we translate in Greek, erite, as excellence, but also virtue is helpful to think about that a habitual disposition towards the good. It's an excellence in particular habits. Whereas in the modern mm -hmm. days, a lot of times virtue is just a good thing. Anyone does, you know, it's, it's hard to put your finger on on excellence or habitual disposition towards the good or yeah. Habituation towards excellence might be like an excellence, excellence of something. So something is virtuous. So an, an excellent knife, according to Aristotle, a virtuous knife is a knife that cuts well. It's because it is it, it in one of its, its virtue is its sharpness. So right? therefore in the, in the domain of human humanity, right? Virtue therefore is this habituation of, that human being driven towards what it means for a human to be excellent. Yes, that's Which right. Which would be morality. Well, uh, well that, yeah. <laughs> in the, yeah, that's the living in truth, beauty and goodness, maybe. Right. You know, yeah. And yeah. so didn't, but Augustine, this is, I asked for the definition because this, so Augustine, what did he say? The right order of things. Mm. Okay. So that would be, what is that? The love of God first. Yeah, so that, I think he was centering on the way that human beings actually act is that usually they have a disposition towards or a love of a certain thing. And so that habitual disposition towards the good is actually speaking towards our affections. And Augustine is like the first person to really are clearly articulate that it's the things that we like and love that cause us to act. And so we have to like and love the right things. Mm. Okay, so the the right things would be God, family, goodness, truth, beauty, mm -hmm. goodness, truth, beauty. Okay, yeah. Yeah. As yeah. Well, I'm clear. I just wanted, or, I just wanted to yeah. make sure I knew what well, and that's you all mean because, by virtue, right? Like virtue has to serve some end. Like, why is virtue even important? Well, we consider virtue important because it it is striving towards some goal, some good that 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 we think is important. And so then the question is, what is that goal? And that's the first where Aristotle starts. You know, what is the highest good? that we're trying to achieve and the highest good, you know, we could define it as pleasure, which we probably wouldn't want to do. Right. Uh, you can define it as, um, happiness, happiness, which is how Aristotle sort of lands lands. Um, and the, but Plato would give a different understanding of the good. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, but, but again, virtue, uh, and virtue formation is serving some purpose, some function, some, it, it's 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 helping us move towards some direction. Otherwise, why be? It, it answers the question: Why be virtuous? 
Which actually C.S. Lewis deals with, right, in Mm -hmm. your Christianity. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. And that's why it's important to answer that question, and that relates to education. Why be virtuous? Why be educated? Um, For what what good are you trying to serve or pursue um, as a result of being virtuous or being educated? Before we move into the practical, because you're kind of bumping up into it, and I want to get there, come back around to the first question, but do you agree with me, my kind of in my double question to Paul, do you agree that the modern kind of just average person's sense of the word virtue is different than what we just described as the definition of virtue? What do you think the modern person thinks virtue is? I think that most people think of virtue as merely ethical right action. Mm. Morality. As morality. Mm. Strictly, not to say mm-hmm. that it doesn't touch a morality, but I think what by thinking about kind of the past, you bring up some other important distinctions. Like, is it excellence in a tra- in a tradition that's maybe not even moral? Like to be a, to work really hard in a test is that virtuous? Mm, to work hard, it's not necessarily morally right or wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. depending on how you frame it, but that that broadens our understanding of this category. Does that does that make mm-hmm. sense? Mm-hmm. I think that virtue does become. Just like everything else, the more you know about the past and its meaning in the past, the richer your understanding of mm. it is. And I think that is, I think that's, I mean, that is classical education, right? right? Well, and, and after the Enlightenment, you know, uh, moral philosophers after the Enlightenment did not talk about virtue in the same way. And so, like for Aristotle and for the classical authors, being happy is a moral question. Are you happy? Are you doing the things that will make you happy? But happiness not defined in our modern sense. Yeah, of happiness that's right. Uh, uh, you know the the word that he sort of is eudaimonia, which is sort of flourishing, human flourishing, a blessedness, a blessedness. No. Right. So 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 that you're absolutely right. Thanks for the footnote. But uh, <laughs> but that that just aside for a second, um, more, modern moral philosophy doesn't see like your pursuit of happiness as a moral question. They say. Um, morality is relegated not to if you're happy or not, but do you do the right things? And so modern moral philosophy is just sort of asked, is just a science of decision-making. How do you do the right things in in situation X (laughs) at time T uh, for person P? (laughs) uh, Should he do uh, one or two? Uh, and then if you choose one at the right time in the right situation with the right person, then boom, you've done a moral act. And so questions of, are you, are you, are you virtuous? Are you, are you happy? Are you blessed? Are you trying to work towards human flourishing? Modern philosophers don't really consider that an ethical issue of, 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 of are you being morally right or wrong? Um, because also they've they're denying human nature and human nature having a telos a purpose. That's right. right? Yeah. And so that's why modern moral philosophers would would yeah. not go into that question because they say we don't have an, an unchanging nature that we all share. Absolutely, and that's why it's always important. I think when you're talking about virtue, is to first start by talking about the telos. What is the human? And by telos, you mean the end, the, the purpose. What, what is the goal? Yeah, what is the purpose? Goal. What is the function? What is the goal of human, qua human, as a human? Um, and then when you answer that question, then you can say what um, dispositions of of uh, of the soul that, as you define virtue, uh, are getting us there or not getting us there. 
you know, if the, if the end or goal of a knife is to cut, well, if it's dull, then it's not going to reach its purpose. Right. So anyway, so we've described it kind of in the abstract on a definitional level, which has been really helpful. Let's get into the classroom. Back to you, Mitch online Academy. Are you able to help them become sharp knives in the online space? Like how do you help them to develop excellencies in this environment? Yeah, I would say that, um, that I, when aerosol talked about for, for me and when I'm talking to t- about teachers uh, to teachers and to students, I, I, I sort of take the Aristotle route here and I say that there are two areas of virtue. There are intellectual virtues. Uh, so, you know, virtues of thinking and there are virtues of action. Virtues of action have to be habituated. They have to be practiced. Virtues of, of intellect have to be taught. And education does both of those things. It forms for students. It forms habits and it teaches. Um, and so that means that our, our teachers need to be habituating right action and they need to be teaching true and good content. and beautiful and good content. And when you're in a Latin class, you must hold your, they don't want to study vocabularies every day, but they have to build that habit by building that habit. You're building, uh, you're building virtues. You're like, like faithfulness, like consistency, like, uh, you know, even courage to stand up to, to a friend that wants to invite you out, but you haven't done your vocabulary cards. So you say, Hey, I need to, uh, I got, if I'm going to be, uh, like a good student, then I have to say no to that. I've, and I've got to have courage to stand up to my friend. So you're cultivating habits in your students just by assigning them homework and holding them accountable to it. Um, but then hopefully you're also accompanying that with a content rich, um, education, those intellectual virtues of, um, which Aristotle defines as sort of knowledge of unchanging things, knowledge of craftiness, art, knowledge of, um, you know, just practically, the different ways that you can live in the world. Right. So, and that comes through history and philosophy. So it, anyway, I, I try to always tell, tell teachers and tell families and, and, and parents we're concerned, deeply concerned about habits and we're deeply concerned about teaching them content, but these two things go hand in hand. So you could go back to the definition that Paul gave a habitual disposition towards the good, a habitual disposition that's taught towards the good, the content, and it's brought together. Yeah. What, what else would you add Paul to, how virtue is brought out in the classroom. You know, I mean, there's all these intellectual virtues that are, are being formed. And I mean, Mitch brought up the faithfulness and consistency and like what we require of them, but there's also, how do you treat one another in the classroom? Mm. Right. How do you um, respect a teacher? I, you know, I remember um, trying to help a family out with a couple of kids that in like a, a righteous, just like a, a righteousness, a righteous repulsion towards some of the wrong action that was being taught in literature, right? Or that characters were doing in literature. And they were so appalled by that, that they were actually being disrespectful to the teacher about like, why are we reading this? This, this is inappropriate. Right. And so it was, it was very interesting walking with, the parents and the, and the children like, okay. And, and the parents were on board. Like we want them learning this stuff, but we understand that they've gone way too far in the way that they've taught, their, they've, they've treated their teacher. And so it's, it's, you know, okay, now let's, let's have a conversation about what is, what is right action not theoretically look like, but in your classroom dealing with the people around you. And this is just online, right? And the thing is online, there is much less inhibition towards typing something that you would never say. That's mm, true. Right. right. 
And so it actually, in some ways, gives us a, a, a more transparent look at what's going on in these children's heads yeah. than what no it filter. would be. More yeah, than you want to know. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And so there's there's all of that that happens yeah. as well um, in, in sort of as we have to watch classroom and, you know, the teachers, you know, uh, are, will daily be pointing out to students like that. Let's, we're not doing that here today. You know, that's, you know, that's not appropriate to say to your fellow classmate, that sort of thing, all sort of like low level things. And then as it, as it gets that's to a the, bigger level, it escalates. To the teacher is as sort of like a midwife for the soul <laughs> because they're sort of, you know, it, they're not only trying to instantiate in the student or bring to life in the student, um, like study habits and, and virtues that are going to help them be a good student, but also interpersonally. Right. Um, how to be a good person. Yeah. How to be a good person. Um, the other example that I think is funny, sometimes I get calls, you know, from family, like, ah, you know, my kid doesn't, he just doesn't want to engage. Like, I'm hopeful that he can learn the material, but like, he's just not going to put the time in that this class needs. So can we just focus on helping him learn the material? And I say, that's impossible. If your student is not willing to engage in these habits, like set aside a few minutes to study his vocabulary cards, his growth and virtue is going to be concomitant <laughs> with his uh, growth and knowledge. And so if he's unwilling to do the, the habits, then he will not learn. <laughs> and that's, and that's where like, we can, we can put him in a situation, <laughs> but he you're, may not you're learn. You're scaring me. <laughs> well, it, but I mean, really what you're doing is you're telling the parent you're forming a habitual his disposition not to do the good. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yes. By, by, by putting them in a position where you're asking them to learn this content, but not giving them the, the habits with which to be successful. It's an incomplete definition of virtue. It's to define virtue as the good rather than a habitual disposition towards the good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tony, what would you mm-hmm. add in the non fragmented online space? <laughs> how does that, how does education I feel like we keep it well, undermined here? The bring it, no, bring we about are virtue online. Yeah, at home true. schools or, or in regular schools. I, I mean, I am going back to Augustine. Yeah. <laughs> I, You're so I, philosophical I today. Wow. Where did I read that? Do you think? I, Marcus, Lewis I mentions in abolition of in the abolition. I haven't of read man. the abolition oh. of man, but Maybe it's on my Marcus? list. Uh, it might have been in Plato to Christ. From Plato to Christ. You know, Maybe I, I quoted I that section in a, in an article I wrote for Warrior Press. So I bet I, that's you may where have it just... was. Of course, I read your articles every night before <laughs> I go to bed. <laughs> um, it could be, but I do think. I mean, we're all. What are we leading our students toward? Their purpose in life. Um, serving God is, I mean, that is the ultimate and all of these things that we're talking about Mm -hmm. are getting us there. So we just can't lose sight of that. I think it's harder in the online school. (laughs) I, you know, when you've got a classroom of students who are with one teacher, they have to learn to get along and to Mm -hmm. treat each other well. I can't imagine trying to do that with everybody in a different home just on a screen. I think that there's some unique challenges for sure. Yes, it's definitely different. Yeah. And I I mean, I will say the average family for us, I mean, it's definitely a partnership with families. Right. right? So we're more of a cottage school model and students are successful to the extent that their parents are engaged in that partnership, you know, because they may come to class one or two days a week with us. Right. Then the rest of the week they're at home and they're being supervised by their parents and the parents are making sure that students have set aside time to study, to take the assessments. And, and for the average student, th- that partnership is strong. 
Yes. Um, you know, but uh, like but any it, school, there's. But that's uh, true in the brick and mortar school, too, mm-hmm. is that it has to be you have to be getting the same thing at home that mm-hmm. you're getting at school. You can't have students. It's not fair to have that contradictory experience mm-hmm. for students. They need the consistency of these are these are the, our rules. Mm-hmm. The this is our code of conduct at school, and we need you to respect that at home too. Right. Or or you're not going to get it. Is going to be totally lopsided. And students will learn that rather than being good because because that's the moral right thing to do, and it's building their character. They'll learn that, well, I have to follow the rules here, mm-hmm. but it's a different set of rules there. So is it really an important rule? Is it really a rule or is it just something, just some hoop I have to jump, jump through? Because we're trying to train people to become children, to become good citizens and good adults, good people mm-hmm. doing what God wants them to do with their lives. And so it's just, I think virtue's huge. And it really is at the center of everything else, mm. right? Is there mm. anything that we're teaching that's more important than that? Mm. I don't think and so. And I love the way that you connected it with actually their academic growth, too. Mm. I thought that separation and then bringing it together was very strong. Wow. Thank Good you. job, Mitch. Thanks. So a question that has arisen from this discussion, Mitch brought up the hypothetical of a parent having to coach a student or a teacher having to coach a student when they have a friend asking them to come hang out and instead they need to be doing their work. Well, somebody could counter and say, how do I decide what the right virtue is, right? Is it more important to study on this quiz or should I be a good friend? How, How do we help our students in classical education to decide between the varying competing virtues that are being advocated for them how do they know what is actually virtue and which affection should be the greatest and how they order these affections? Um, Aristotle says it's impossible for kids to know this because they don't, they haven't lived, they, they haven't, they don't have enough experience. They, they haven't acquired enough wisdom in the world. So, <laughs> so, so we, have an ageist. we have to do it for them. <laughs> yeah. But we're also presenting them as we're trying to give them as much experience as we can through literature and history. Absolutely. Um, but, but also, I mean, I was going to reference Plato and not Aristotle. I mean, Plato in, in his, his presentation of the good, the good is, is something that you behold in a way that, is intangible, right? I mean, it's the whole reincarnation thing. And, you know, you've seen this before you were born, but, uh, but, but it's, it is very much even like Plato presents it very much as even like, it's hard for an adult to discern what is good. Mm-hmm. Um, because that good is a, a, as a Christian Platonist, you would say, well, the good is God. And you're, there's, there's not a, a way to, to like make that very concrete for the child to understand what that habitual disposition towards the good is. Well, and the child's not going to be able to discern the fact that yeah, I want to be a good friend mm. to my friend, but my friend would want me, if my friend is a good friend, they would obviously want me to do well on my quiz right. and right. not put me in that position. I mean, it's all, it's complicated. That, so that, we do have to do a lot of it for them, but we also have to, they've got to learn mm-hmm. those things, but we have to tell them. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's helpful to remember, and Aircel makes the point that uh, ethics is not a an exact science. It's not like 
um, like knowledge of unchangeable things like math, you know, like two plus two equals four. That's a very clear formula. We know exactly two plus two will always equal four. Um, knowing to go hang out with a friend or not to go out to a friend is not an exact science because it sometimes, sometimes it may be necessary for you to forgo what you were going to do. Like when your friend is going through a hard time, That's for example. Right. right. And so, so knowledge, ethical knowledge or, or virtue knowledge is knowledge of changing things. And it depends upon the person in that situation and is there a fittedness to the time. And we acquire that knowledge through experience, through reading literature, through, through uh, seeing stories about people and how they're how they were friends, and 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 uh, the balancing these sort of responsibilities by observing parents and seeing them negotiate these values in the context of their own lives. Right. So, the, I think whenever students are young, you tell them, "Hey." This is not friend time. This is study time. Um, you know, so you're telling them, but then as they get older, you know, you're probably, I mean, I don't have a, a student that is old enough. My child is two years old, um, you know, but I imagine at a certain point I want to sort of invite her to start making that choice, giving her the responsibilities and then uh, and inviting her to make that choice. But for a long time, it's probably just me discerning for her what, uh, what are the right virtues um, at what time. But you also have to watch their habitual dispositions, right? Mm -hmm. So you have child A and child B and child A would be yeah. the, the kind of kid that's going to sit there and do his flashcards all day long, right? right. So he's, he's, he's mastered that, that virtue of diligence and, and child B is the kind of kid that's going to leave that and go play with their friends. And so when you're, when you're trying to, um, when both of them want to go play with their friends, well, you may tell child A, you get to go play with your friends, and child B, you get to do your flashcards because you, because you, you've identified what their habitual disposition is and you're trying to help yeah. them grow that habitual disposition to what it needs to be. Because that kid who's diligent, if he's diligent all the time and, and, and then he never goes and plays with the friend, at a certain point, that's not a virtue anymore. And it's now in excess. Yeah, and he may not want to go play with friends. You need to say, you need to go play with your you friends. You need to go do that. That's you right. are so excited about this, but I feel we like- We want to go play with our friends. Oh, is that what it is? Like, <laughs> let's just end this thing so you can go play. Um, I feel like you just keep doing Aristotle. You keep doing Plato. Do you feel like we're in the middle of I some kind of- I do kind of feel like of, there's a tension here. Yes, I think no, there's so There's no too. tension between Plato and Aristotle. They are in, they are, you know, well- There one, is a tension. One is, the, one is the student, <laughs> one is the teacher- Paul's the teacher and I am the student. Wow. So moving on from you. <laughs> That's really quaint. I don't fundamental disagreements. <laughs> I do want to ask you about the role of story, especially in classical education mm. and how we connect that to virtue. It seems like we spend a lot of time telling our students stories. How do you think that that plays a part in virtue formation and how so? Well, Paul alluded to it. I mean, like when you read stories, you're, did you want to? No, go for it. <laughs> just, just tell them what I was, what I was alluding to. You alluded to it earlier uh, about the importance that you know, stories sort of inoculate you into the world uh, by giving you little doses of truly human experiences uh, so that you can learn how difficult it is. So you see stories of characters choosing between playing with their friends, staying at home. You see stories of of, of, of fathers, um, choosing when to go to war and when they need to go home. Right. That's what you're reading about. Um, and, and why it's necessary, you know, for that to even happen. So you see adult, you see characters 
themselves embodying these these virtues in different times, different situations. And the more you can see examples of real humans in real life situations at particular moments choosing one path versus another, um, that that sort of becomes a a, a scientific way of understand of, of of studying humans and and this type of decisions and 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 attitudes that you may be invited into because of your life situations, right? And how you should then live, and so it becomes a a sort of eye into the glimpse of the human spirit and how you should how you should then live, right? They they become models or or, or paradigms to avoid. I can't remember. Um, I wish I could remember the context, but I was in a classroom yesterday and they were reviewing for a Greek myths test. And so she was going through, you know, the stories that they had just done. And I don't remember the context, but whatever the story was in Greek myths, a student brought up a biblical story that kind mm-hmm. of paralleled it and asked about about it. And so she talked about the biblical story. And then she said, and remember, this other's just a myth. And then she moved on. But it was the same lesson mm-hmm. once with actual humanity and once with fantastical creatures. But the student was able to the, to make the parallel between them. They were able to pull well, out the moral well, instruction yes, in yes, that story. And yeah. connect it to mm-hmm. the biblical story. Yeah. yeah. It would be a lot stronger if I could remember the story. <laughs> uh, I, I would say, I mean, when it comes to virtue and, and story, I mean, I, what was occurring to me is that when, I, when I'm when i talking to like a close friend about, you know, whatever, when I'm kind of telling my deepest, darkest, intimate thoughts, you know, or whatever, when I'd like, to, where, where like am I spend today? Time together. So when Mitchell and I <laughs> spend time together, I constantly am using stories to say that's the kind of person I want to be like or that's that is what I that what that person struggled with in that story is what I'm struggling with right mm-hmm. now and it's it's a way for me to actually express sort of feelings emotions that that it would take me a long time to formulate words that would really fully encapsulate it. But if they read the same stories I have, I'm able mm-hmm. to actually communicate it. And so, and I mean, so, Jesus chose that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, insofar so far as being able to then use those, if we're instructing students to say, well, you know, what did Heidi do in the book? You know, like in, in, you know, I was, uh, um, we were talking about the death of my cat this morning and somehow we got to the prolapse of the soul. And so I started thinking about Anna Karenina and the choices she makes and it, it ends up, you know, being, um, her final end. Right. You know, like it leads her to that. Did right. Your cat follow it, it, went a long, it went a long way. That conversation went a long way. <laughs> yes. about, about three Personal minutes. We got that very quickly. Very interesting. Oh but, my goodness. Well, the, um, um uh, was it Flannery O'Connor who said that we write stories because sentences are insufficient? Oh, I don't know, to, but it's nice to explain. It, I, I'm a little <laughs> bit paraphrasing, but did Tony but, write that? Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's very nice. No, I I, that I is had. a quote from from her. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but basically the idea being that there are things about the human experience that can't really be summed up in just a couple of short sentences or propositions that they have to be seen through in the medium of a story. And I would just add that going back to the Augustine point that you made, if it is about the things we love or like then stories give us characters that we are compelled by. Their mm-hmm. actions aren't just articulated. They're like, I want to, I love Aslan. I just want to be like Aslan. And that's a part of the, the power of story. 
we've talked a lot about virtue. We've gone into Aristotle, Plato. What have we left anything on the table? I think we we've really covered a lot. I think that's just about it. There's so much that you can say. Well, thank you guys for having this conversation. I've enjoyed it and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.